Thank you for this opportunity to be here today. Thank you for allowing us to be in I never turned on that mic. Thank you for allowing us to be in your presence. Thank you for, um, Thank you for, sorry, it looks like my mic is not working. Check, check. I'm sorry. Let me start over with the prayer. I'll just do it from the beam of mic. Uh, I apologize for that, everybody. Alvino Malcano, our Father, our King, thank you for this opportunity to be here today. Uh, thank you for a working microphone at the Bima. Thank you for um, all the people who uh, took time out of their lives to come and be with you and worship you and build your kingdom in a way that's pleasing to you. In Yeshua's name, amen. Check, check. Is W2 on? Test, test, test. There we go. Okay. Now we got it. Can you guys hear me? All right, sorry about that. So I have two things to talk to you about today. One is very short, um, and one is uh, a longer, uh, more traditional teaching. Um, the first is when we look at our complete Jewish Bible, we don't call the first part the Old Testament and the second part the New Testament we call it the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah. Today's parashah is very important because it contains that actual Old Covenant. What we actually call the Old Covenant was a, it's not all of Torah, it's, it's part of it. It's the covenant that Adonai made with Abraham to take him and be his, uh, to be his people. We find that in Breshit chapter 15, that's uh, Genesis chapter 15 on page 13. And this is the covenant between the pieces. So I'm gonna read that for you real quick because I think it's important. This is one of those moments in Torah that we tend to maybe skip over. We talk a lot about um, Breshit 17 and 18 with um, Sarah having a child, having Yitzchak at 90 years old. But that is the fulfillment of the promise that was made in chapter 15. So if you turn with me to Breshit 15 on page 13, I'm going to read that for you. Sometime later, the word of Adonai came to Avram in a vision. Don't be afraid, Avram. I am your protector. Your reward will be very great. Avram replied, Adonai God, what good will your gifts be to me if I continue to be childless and Eliezer from Damasek inherits my possessions? You haven't given me a child. Avram continued, so someone born in my house will be my heir. But the word of Adonai came to him. This man will not be your heir. No, your heir will be a child from your own body. And then he brought him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars, if you can count them. Your descendants will be that many. 
He believed in Adonai, and he credited to him as righteousness. He believed in Adonai, and he credited to him as righteousness. This is, the, this is what's so incredible about Avram. God tells him these fantastic things, and he believes them. Then he said to him, I am Adonai who brought you out from ur Kestim to give you this land as your possession. He replied, Adonai, God, how am I to know that I will possess it? He answered him, Bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a dove, and a young pigeon. He brought him all these, cut the animals in two, and placed the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Avram drove them away. As the sun was about to set, a deep sleep fell on Avram. Horror and great darkness came over him. Adonai said to Avram, Know this for certain, your descendants will be foreigners in a land that is not theirs. They will be slaves held in oppression there for 400 years. But I will also judge that nation, the one that makes them slaves. Afterwards, they will leave with many possessions. As for you, you will join your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. Only in the fourth generation will your descendants come back here, because only then will the emery be ripe for punishment. After the sun had set, there was a thick darkness. A smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared, which passed between these animal parts. That day, Adonai made a covenant with Avram. I have given this land to your descendants. From the Vadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River, the territory of the Keni, the Kenezi, the Chaldami, the Hitti, the Pirizi, the Rephaim, the Emery, the Kenai, the Girgashi, and the UVC. So when we talk about the Old Covenant, that is the Old Covenant. What I found particularly interesting about that is God is making the covenant. God is making it happen. Um, it's not Avram that passes between the two parts. It's the flaming fire pot and the fiery torch that passes between the two parts to seal that covenant. Avram just to be, has to be obedient and be there. He just has to show up for it. But God does everything else. I must imagine that um, after the Exodus, as the people were leaving, they must have seen the symbolism in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of smoke by day. And that would harken back to the flaming fire pot and the fiery torch that traveled between the parts and let them know that this indeed was the same God who had made a covenant with their ancestors. It's just kind of a little bit of my thoughts on that this morning. I thought it was important to, to draw that out and, and, and point that specifically out that when we talk about the old covenant, that that I just read, that is the covenant. That God will give the people of Israel the land and he will make their descendants as numerous as the stars. And we can see today that this is happening. It is he's still fulfilling his covenant even in these days. So those were, my, those were my thoughts. I have another teaching here that um, it's, a, it's a similar thing, but it's a little bit different. Um, this is actually a teaching that is based on a teaching that our beloved Rob Mike Lorberg uh, did back in 2012. 
So what I've done is I've kind of gone through his teaching and um, I generally uh, um, have to uh, rewrite them to get them into my own words. Um, if I don't do that, uh, uh, Rob, Mike, and I don't, we don't speak the same way. So if I directly read his words, um, I will stumble over them. So I have to, I have to retype it and kind of put it in my own, uh, put it in my own thoughts. So this is a teaching that uh, Mike Lorberg gave. This is based on a teaching that Mike Lorberg gave called The Journey of the Seed. So with the explosion of global media, we have, nation, we have worldwide television channels. We have, I mean, you can get, you can get uh, news stations from around the world now. I mean, how many of us have you know, seen, we watch BBC or we watch um, uh, various, uh, you can look up and you can see Al Jazeera if you want, everything's, um, the Russian Times, they have their own, uh, their own news channel. Uh, beyond our normal American channels, we can see whatever we want. There's an explosion of global media, social media. We're arguably the best informed generation in history. And I find it ironic that a disproportionate amount of this media attention is directed at a tiny country in the Middle East, a country that has less population than our own state of Michigan. Yet it's constantly in the news. There are stats on coronavirus vaccines. And for a long time the world is watching how many Israelis were sick, how many Israelis got vaccinated, what their percentage was, how many Israelis are getting the Delta virus. Our politicians are talking about, they're arguing about, do we fund their missile defense system, the Iron Dome, or don't we? Um, uh, their human rights record is, is, is what is happening in the territories, correct or not. There's a constant chatter about Israel far beyond what this tiny little country of nine and a half million people should be generating. It seems that despite thousands of years of the organized church attempting to shun, minimize, demonize, or ignore Israel, Israel is even more in focus than ever. Why is that? To understand this unique standing of Israel among nations, we have to put on some biblical x-ray goggles. The Bible doesn't say why Israel is so important. It doesn't explicitly say this, you know, this is why you're here. But we have to but we can ask different questions that will lead us to that answer. First, we have to ask the question, why was Israel set apart and chosen from all the nations of the world? And the second question is, what is the purpose of this chosen status? Now, for the most part, as I just said, Scripture doesn't give us a clear answer to either of those questions. There's nothing that singles her out as being more worthy than any other nation. She's not, the she's not more righteous than anybody else. So why was she chosen? 
There are two answers to this question. The first is found in this week's parasha, Lech Lecha. And we find that in Breshit chapter 12, verse 1 on page 11. Why don't we go ahead and turn there? So that's Breshit or Genesis 12, verse 1 on page 11 of the complete Jewish Bible. Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 11. Now Adonai said to Avram, get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation, I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you are to be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you, and by you all the families of the earth will be blessed. This blessed status is affirmed in chapter 15 that I read earlier. Adonai brought uh, Avram outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars. If you can count them, your descendants will be that many. He believed Adonai and he credited to him as righteousness. So Avram's belief and obedience was what credited him righteous. It's what made him righteous. But that doesn't explain why God chose him. This righteousness that, uh, that was conferred upon Avram is only a response to what God asked him to do. God asked him to do something. He believed him and he did it, so he was righteous. But why did God ask him in the first place? Devarim 7, 7 says, Adonai didn't set his heart on you or choose you because you numbered more than any other people on the contrary, you are fewest of all people. So scripture doesn't really say why Avram was chosen. Perhaps God, in the beginning, he looked at the world and saw this man Avram and said, this man will be obedient to me. He's the one that I need to wait for and start my have my covenant with. The, rabbi, the rabbinic sages would agree with that. Um, they would agree that uh, when God looked before creation, when God looked forward, he saw this man Avram and said, I can work with him. But the fact is, we don't really know. Devarim 9, chapter 9, verses 5 through 7 says, it's not because of your righteousness or because your heart is so upright that you go in to take possession of their land, but to punish the wickedness of these nations that Adonai your God is driving them out ahead of you. And also to confirm the word which Adonai swore to your ancestors, Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Therefore understand that it is not for your righteousness that Adonai your God is giving you all this good land to possess, for you are a stiff-necked people. Remember, don't forget how you made Adonai, your God, angry in the desert. From this day, from the day you left Egypt till you arrived in this place, you have been rebelling against Adonai. So Adonai may have been righteous, but certainly not all of his offspring were, or else God would not be telling them that they rebelled from the moment he took them out of Egypt. <clears throat> Adonai made a covenant 
with Avram because of Avram's righteousness. Adonai knew that Avram would be the one who would obey him, and Avram did obey him, and that was Avram's righteousness. But he continued that covenant not on account of their righteousness, but on account of his grace. God had grace on the descendants of Avram. The fact is, we don't really know why God chose Avram. Scripture doesn't say. Myself and the sages are just speculating when we say that God looked forward and knew that he could work with that man. We don't, we don't know that for sure. We don't know why he chose Avram, and we don't know why he continues to keep faith with his people. We don't know why he chose us or continue to keep faith with us. I like to think that maybe, like Avram, he saw a spark of obedience in all of us that he could use for his purposes. And that goes on to the second question. What is that purpose? If God chooses anybody, I mean, if he chose Israel, what is Israel's chosen status for? That answer is a little more simple. Israel was chosen to carry in her womb the promised seed, the Messiah, who would bring redemption to all mankind. Galatians 3.16 says, Now that the promises were made to Abraham and to his seed, it doesn't say, and to seeds, as if to many. On the contrary, it speaks of one, and to your seed, and this one is the Messiah. The word seed in Hebrew is zerah. That's a zadi, resh, and a nain. The singular seed was planned from the very beginning. In Breshit 3.15, as Adonai is speaking to the serpent of this singular seed, he says, I will put animosity between you and the woman and between your descendant and her descendant. He will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. Now, the actual Hebrew between your descendant and her descendant is za'akar uben zerah, your seed and her seed. So when he's talking to the servant, I will put animosity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. Scripture says many things about this seed, but two primary things become evident. First, this seed was going to subdue the adversary. He was going to descend and be born on earth just as every person is. And second, and of major importance here, is that this person, this seed, would be born of a woman. This is prophecy. God is prophesying something when he says to the woman, your seed will subdue them. This is prophecy because a woman's reproductive system does not contain a seed. She has the egg. The seed comes from the male side. So this person, this seed born of a woman, has to be conceived by some sort of divine intervention. It's not going to be natural. The theme of this promised seed is central throughout Scripture. It begins in Genesis, or Breshit 3.15, as we just explored, 
And it continues in Bereshit uh, 4.25 with Shet. It says, Adam again had sexual relations with his wife, for she gave birth to a son, and she named him Shet, which means granted. For God has granted me another seed in place of Havel, since Cain killed him. And then in our parasha, we were introduced to, we were introduced to Avraham, whose seed would come to be great and numerous people. And a singular seed would bless all the families of the earth. In Breshit 17, we find Avram 100 years old, and Sarah, his wife, was 90. Chapter 18 tells us she was well past the age of childbearing. It's clear that for this promised seed to continue, some sort of divine intervention would need to take place for the conception. A 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman are not naturally going to have children. So let's look at that. Um, it's Breshit 18, verse 11, on page 16. It's Breshit, or Genesis 18, verse 11, on page 16. <laughs> Avram and Sarah were old, advanced in years. Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, thinking, I am old, and so is my Lord. Am I to have pleasure again? And I said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and ask, Am I really going to bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too hard for Adonai? At the time set for it, at this season next year, I will return to you, and Sarah will have a son. So we have this divine intervention in the conception of a son for Sarah and Abraham. In the Parashah in, in Parasha Todot, the story of this seed continues with the history of Yitzchak and Rivka. In Breshit 25.19, it says, Here is the history of Yitzchak, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Yitzchak. Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka, the daughter of Butel, the Amri, from Padamaram and sister of Levan, the Amri, to be his wife. Yitzchak prayed to Adonai on behalf of his wife because she was childish, childless. Adonai heeded his prayer, and Rivka became pregnant. So we have God interceding again to make sure this seed continues. The journey continues with 2 Samuel, with David in 2 Samuel um, chapter 7, uh, verses 12 and 13 says, When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to secede you, one of your own <clears throat> flesh and blood, and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. Continues with Shlomo, Hezekiah, Zerubbabel, and so on. All carriers of the seed all carriers of the seed, but not the seed itself. That would take time. But let's move forward in Scripture and talk about a man named Yosef. This man found himself at the beginning of a wonderful relationship with his bride-to-be, Miriam. But the very concept of this promised seed would challenge him to his very core. At the heart of the story of the seed 
is adversity and God's power to overcome that adversity. For Yosef, the adversity wasn't that his fiancée couldn't conceive. It was that she already had. And this challenged his social expectations as an obedient Jew. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 16, on page 1224. It's Maris Yahu, or Matthew 1, verse 16, on page 1224. <coughs> Starting on verse 16. Yaakov was the father of Yosef, the husband of Miriam, from who was born the Yeshua, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations from Avraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylonian exile, and 14 generations from the Babylonian exile to Messiah. Here is how the birth of Yeshua, the Messiah, took place. When his mother Miriam was engaged to Yosef before they were married, she was found to be pregnant from the Ruach HaKodesh. Her husband-to-be, Yosef, who was a man who did what was right, so he made plans to break the engagement quietly rather than put her to public shame. But while he was thinking about this, an angel of Adonai appeared to him in a dream and said, Yosef, son of David, do not be afraid to take Miriam home with you as your wife. For what has been conceived in her is from the Ruach HaKodesh. She will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Yeshua, which means Adonai saved, because he will save his people from their sins. All this happened in order to fulfill what Adonai had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. This name means God is with us. When Yosef awoke, he did what the angel of Adonai had told him to do. He took Miriam to be his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to a son, and he named him Yeshua. This virgin birth is one of the essential features of belief in Messiah. But how much do we really think about it? How much do we actually study this particular aspect of our faith. For Jewish people, this has become a stumbling block, this divine birth. They don't understand it. They don't, they don't see it called out in Scripture that this will happen, so it's a stumbling block for them. And I think for most of us, we simply take it for granted. We just accept the supernatural element of Messiah's birth. Even though we see a clear pattern of divine intervention in the conception of the seed from generation to generation, if you really think about it, like most miracles, this miracle tests the limits of our understanding. Was it God's seed that Miriam conceived? Did Adonai implant a complete embryo in Miriam to grow into, uh, into a baby? We don't know. The, the biological aspects are irrelevant, really. But how can we reconcile in our minds this overwhelming event? And if you actually take time to think about it, it is overwhelming. If any of us in here were presented 
with this same situation, we would not believe it. We believe it now because we've been brought up in Scripture. But if your fiancé, men, came to you and said, I'm pregnant by the Ruach HaKodesh, not one of us in here would believe that. So <laughs> it really is overwhelming. If you take a moment, it's, it, it defies belief if you take a moment and really think about it. And honestly, if, if it doesn't overwhelm you, if the virgin birth doesn't test the limits of your understanding, then you're not thinking about it enough. And there's a danger there because if you're not thinking about it enough, you won't be prepared to defend it when challenged. Thankfully, we have an example of someone who had very good cause to doubt we, had some, we have someone whose personal reputation and relationship with his spiritual community and his bride were at stake. This account of Joseph's doubt and his journey from doubt to understanding, as recorded in Matthew 1, is God showing us something about leaning not on our own understanding, but trusting in, the, in his faithfulness and sovereignty. The problems facing Joseph were numerous. First, Miriam's pregnancy occurred when she was betrothed to Yosef. Betrothal is not like a modern engagement. In Second Temple times, under Jewish law, a betrothal meant they were actually considered married. Now, they didn't live together. They didn't have any physical relations. But they were, they were married nonetheless. The Hebrew Aramaic word for betrothal is kedushin, which signifies sanctification or separation. The man and the woman were set apart for each other for sanctification. And the purity of each, especially the woman, was tested. Now, if you think about it, this is actually rather clever and, and I think a, a rather smart way to do things. Live as though you are married with absolutely no physical aspect to cloud your judgment. So you get to know the person that you're going to spend the rest of your life with without their relative attractiveness being able to sway your decision at all. I think this is clever. I think there'd be more successful marriages in our world if the physical aspects of the, of the relationship were saved until later. So when you're in this period, if you're like Yosef and the purity of your bride or your husband <clears throat> during this one-year period, you're supposed to be searching out and really kind of putting your best face forward to each other to show that you both are worthy to be in this relationship together. And you find out that your bride is pregnant. How do you think you'd react in that situation? She's pregnant. 
What would people say? What would they do? How will they treat you if you stay with her? At, at very best, they would think that you accept such things, that you tolerate such an egregious sin. Or at worst, they would think that you sinned with her by having relations before the time had come. So there's a great deal of personal risk involved for Yosef here. And to top it all off, she has a crazy story that she was made pregnant by the Ruach HaKodesh. Even if you were very well-versed in the story of the seed and the divine in interventions that happened so many times in the Torah, and we talked about the prophecy of the seed with the, the woman and her seed in the serpent, and we talked about Avram's seed, and we talked about um, the seed continuing with Shet, and Yitzchak and Rivka. So even if you put all those together and saw all the divine interventions to take to the seed, to keep the seed going, when it got to you, would you really be able to accept it? So obviously the problem here for Yosef is his own righteousness. As a truly righteous person, he didn't desire to marry a girl who was impure and unfaithful. He couldn't share his life with someone who didn't share his standard of faith. Devarim 22.23 actually tells us this is against Torah. He couldn't marry her. If a girl who is a virgin is engaged to a man and another man comes upon her in the town and has sexual relations with her, you are bringing them both to the gate of the city and stone them to death. So Miriam being pregnant was potentially a death penalty offense. So how could Yosef reconcile this? Fortunately, when God put all this together, he picked the right man to be involved in this. See, Yosef had a very tender heart. He didn't want to publicly disgrace her. There wasn't only this shame of being an unwed mother, but according to the Mishnah and the Torah, adultery during this betrothal period was more serious sin than regular adultery and carried more severe repercussions. He didn't want that. So he sought a private divorce. And he planned on only notifying her father and two witnesses, which is what was required by Jewish law. He was going to do this instead of bringing her before the local Jewish court, the Beit Din. So Joseph was a tender-hearted man who was just going to quietly move on with his life and try to cause as little damage as possible. But before Yosef could begin this procedure, God showed up. Yosef was given three distinct messages that would change Yosef's halakha, his walk, from one of doubt to one of faith. First, the message itself delivered by an angel and its timing. Now, once this divorce process had started, once he talked to the girl's father or talked to the witness, it was unretractable. And remarriage was impossible. 
It doesn't matter if they were still in the betrothal period. If he had started this process, the marriage was over. So this message was delivered just in the nick of time. The fact that this message came in a supernatural manner lent credence to the supernatural nature of this pregnancy. So this is the first sign for Yosef. I mean, an angel gives you, starts talking to you. I mean, you think that would be enough, but uh, Scripture tells us that you need to check every message, every spirit, every prophecy by Scripture. So the content of the message is just as important as the messenger himself. Yosef couldn't take it just basic, based on the who was telling him. He had to listen to what they were telling him. So the second proof is in the name of the Messiah Yeshua. This name was given to him before he was born. This was very significant because the rabbis taught that there would be five people in all of history whose name was given before birth. Yitzchak, Ishmael, Shlomo, Yoshiyahu, that's Josiah, King Josiah, and the name of Messiah. So four of them had already been born, and the fifth, the name of the Messiah, was yet to be born. So perhaps Yosef was able to recognize that this child would be special. This divine naming, not just saying she's with a child from the Ruach HaKodesh, but saying this will be the child's name. We're going to name him before birth. This was very important. This got Yosef's mind thinking. He was able to realize that this prophecy was indeed miraculous and was pleasing to God. He may not have fully understood it yet, but he was able to take a step forward in faith. In Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, this prophecy is, concerned, is confirmed. It refers back to Yeshiyahu 7.14, where it says, Therefore Adonai will give, him, give you, a, you people a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel, God with us. So, when you get a prophecy, you need to check it versus Scripture. When you get a word from God, you have to check it versus Scripture. The message did that for him, said to him, I'm giving you this prophecy, I'm, giving, I'm telling you what's going to happen. Here's the scriptural verse I'm fulfilling right now. The, the Ruach HaKodesh, when he came to Yosef in a dream, kind of wrapped it all up very nicely for him. So let's look at Yosef's reaction. He took Miriam as his wife. So he stepped out in faith. He heard what the angel said. He heard the content of his message. And he took that step in faith and obedience. As a sign of respect, he did not have marital relations with her until after the birth of the child. That's important. He, reckon, he, rec he recognized this was a sanctified marriage and that he needed to stay away until God's purposes had been completed. He called the name of the child Yeshua as he had been instructed. This shows us without a shadow of a doubt 
that he sincerely believed in Miriam's purity and the supernatural nature of this pregnancy. Now, if you think about it, if we talked about Avram earlier, this sounds a little bit like him, doesn't it? Both of them were told something fantastic that God was going to do. Both of them took this step in faith and obedience. Both of them responded in the appropriate way. If Yosef, the man with the most at stake in believing this virgin birth story, could be, could be convinced, we must take his testimony very, very seriously. What that means is if he believed, we should believe. In many ways, Yosef is put into the background of Yeshua's birth. We talk about him this once, and we never think of him again. We don't think of the man very much. But if you think about it, Yosef could have easily rejected Messiah. It would have been socially acceptable for him to reject Messiah. But he didn't. Instead of doubting, Yosef became the first believer in Messiah Yeshua. He believed in him even before he saw him. His response should be enough for us to believe in the miraculous nature of this birth. The story of the Brit Kadashah is one of human adversity and fulfilled promises from the Creator, making good on predictions made hundreds of years before in defiance of all reasonable prob probabilities. The seed traveled for thousands of years, but finally made good the words of the prophet Yeshayahu in chapter 46, verse 10. The prophet said, At the beginning, I announce the end. Proclaim in advance things not yet done. And I say that my plan will hold. I will do everything I please to do. Shabbat Shalom. Let's go before Abba. Alvinu Malkenu, our father, our king. We thank you for the nation of Israel that carried the seed of your Messiah to us. We thank you for the nation of Israel that still teaches us the way to worship your Messiah and worship you. Her journey is not done. Her, her path is not over. I thank you for this teaching that I, I was able to glean from Mike Lorberg that showed us the journey of this seed, that the miraculous conception is not a one-time event in Scripture, but it's something that you did all through the Torah and the Tanakh, and so that we should look at it and not be surprised whatsoever. And I thank you for the example of Yosef, Miriam's husband. If he who had the most reason to disbelieve was able to believe, then we should follow that example and be like him. In Yeshua's name, we thank you and we praise you. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen.